0: I think that the legal profession does a really, really terrible job of allowing us to be the people that we are outside of law. I think it was expected for a very, very long time that you could have a life outside of your firm or outside of wherever you practiced, but you had to leave that life at the door. And I kind of just blatantly reject that notion. I'm very, very open with my clients. I don't have an anonymous Twitter. I try to be as much of myself in my client interaction as I am on Twitter as I am on our podcast, because I don't really want to hide who I am when I'm doing anything, let alone Mm -hmm. the thing that I do the most, which is other than parenting, which is be a lawyer.
1: Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington DC. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with employment lawyer, Karen Vladek, who's a partner at Woodliff Cutler PLLC in Austin, Texas. Karen represents corporate, startup, and nonprofit clients in the resolution of disputes pending before the EEOC, state employment agencies, and in state and federal courts. Karen began her legal career as a law clerk to the chief judge of the Maryland Court of Appeals, Mary Ellen Barbera, and then practiced at Errant Fox LLP in Washington, D.C. before moving to Austin in 2016. In addition to her practice, Karen hosts her own incredible podcast with her husband, Steve, who's a professor at Texas Law called In Loco Parentis, where they talk about parenting and lawyering in that order. Karen's a graduate of Cornell University, Go Big Red, and the University of Miami School of Law, Go Hurricanes. Welcome to the podcast, Karen.
0: Thank you, Jonah. Thanks for having me.
1: So I want to start by asking you a little bit about your day job and more specifically, what does an employment lawyer do?
0: Sure. So I think that there's lots of different types of employment lawyers. The most traditional divide is usually when you say, are you a plaintiff-side employment lawyer or are you a defense-side employment lawyer? And so traditionally, plaintiff-side employment lawyers would represent individuals um, who are bringing claims against their employer. I represent companies almost exclusively. So I guess I fall on the defense side of things. But I also do a lot of counseling. So what I like to say about my practice is that I try to keep companies out of trouble, right? So most of my day is spent on compliance. I do not have a heavy litigation docket. I think for employment law, most of that has moved towards insurance defense firms because most big companies have coverage. And so Mm -hmm. the Ogletrees, the Littlers, the safest of the world, they are sort of dominant in that area of defense. And so most of mine is counseling. And then I do have litigation that comes up. In my practice now, because I'm in Texas, a lot of my practice is non-compete or trade secret litigation, much more so than your sort of traditional employment defense work. So when people think of employment law, they think of Title VII or the state equivalent of that anti-discrimination. And again, because most of that is covered by insurance, most of my litigation is in the non-compete space.
1: And how do you think about being ahead of the curve. How do you advise companies? What questions do you ask? What knowledge do you need to have? How do you advise companies before the fact to avoid litigation after the fact?
0: It's hard because I think in a lot of companies, employment is sort of the last thing that they think about. And most of the time we come in and we say, no, you can't do that, right? A lot of my clients are human resources professionals, So because I'm in Austin, a lot of our companies don't have their own outside GCs yet, more in a startup nascent phase. And so if it's in the more of a human resource type relationship, it's about making sure that they're up to speed on what the laws actually are, right? Because human resource professionals, they have sort of a general idea about the law, but they're not you know, sitting there
1: mm-hmm.
0: reading the CFR when it comes out, right? Not right. that GCs are either, but they kind of are more up to speed on the general laws. And so if it's a employment law client that is more of an HR-based client, making sure that new laws that are coming out, they even know what they are, right? So, for example, the American Rescue Act that just came out that has a new COBRA subsidy that requires all employers with more than 20 employees to pay for COBRA between April 1st and September 30th, 2021. So this is a brand new thing that just Mm -hmm. came out. It's in response to the COVID crisis. Most people, even I talked to a GC this morning who didn't know about it, and it's been on the books for two months. So a lot of it is just making sure that clients are aware of new laws that are coming out. In DC this year, there was a new law that came out that spanned non-competes. It's not only banned non-competes, but it's also banned the banning of outside work so, for example, you would often see in a handbook that says, if you're an employee at, you know, XYZ company, you can't moonlight, right? You can't even drive an Uber, even if it has right. nothing to do with your day job. That practice is now banned in DC. That went into effect in early 2021. So it's really staying on top of the new laws that are coming out and just making sure that the client understands that those are new and out there and what they need to do for their documents to make sure that it's in compliance, right? So hmm. a lot of it really is compliance, just like any other area of law. It just happens to be in the employment space.
1: And how do you stay up to date, right? I mean, you. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like that's kind of the, the trick is you need to be ahead of the curve of people who also need to be just slightly less ahead of the curve than you.
0: Yeah. So I always have to be like one step ahead of the client, right? Because it's always terrible if the client calls and says like, Oh, did you hear about this new law and you're sitting there Googling it's, it's hard. And I think some employment lawyers try to have a 50 state practice and I don't bill myself as someone who has a 50 state practice, right? There's also municipalities. So what our practice focuses on primarily is Texas law, of course, And we have uh, 12 partners in my firm and we have two partners who specialize just in employment so that's me and somebody else and the other person is a california lawyer so between the two of us we have texas and california covered and then i have existing clients from dc who came with me i do happen to have a client in georgia so i stay up to speed on that but like for example i try to avoid having clients in areas like new york or illinois where there's constantly new laws and i'll Mm -hmm. tell them you're going to be better served going with a local lawyer right because in texas there's enough law to stay on top of and between texas and california we really do have a lot of clients
1: got it and was this always your plan to do employment law
0: no so i had a really interesting plan my undergraduate major is a really specific major at cornell called industrial and labor relations and it is a major that's very small has about 150 students in a year it's very niche specialized in being lawyers that are also agents Hmm. a lot of labor law lawyers like you know traditional labor union lawyers and then a lot of people go into human resources or organizational behavior that type of thing so i knew i was going to go to law school i had this sort of employment law kind of light background and when i was in law school i didn't even take employment law i Hmm. actually thought that i was going to be A white collar and antitrust lawyer. I really, really liked antitrust in law school. I was super into that. I wanted to go work at the FTC or at DOJ. And I graduated in 2009. So 2009 was a time where you just kind of took what you got yeah so i had an an interesting situation where i had clerked for a big law firm in between my 2l and 3l year in miami a firm called carlton fields which is a very big southeast law firm in the united states and i got an offer to join but i was dating my then boyfriend at the time we had been dating long distance since the start of our relationship and he was in washington dc and so we were scrambling, trying to get me a job in DC after graduation. Well, you can imagine that a Miami grad, even if I had the best grades in the whole world coming in, in 2009, when everybody's, everyone is scrambling, yeah, for job, sure, right? Sure. And so You had on a guest a couple episodes ago about admitting when things are luck. Like yeah. how much of what, how much of people who are successful that that is a mix of, yes, it's hard work. Yes. It's, you know, things that sure. we make that happen, but a lot of it is luck.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what happened to me was I was applying for clerkships. I was applying everywhere. And at the time, Steve was in his second year at American and his colleague, Jamie Raskin, mm-hmm. he went to him and he said, you know, I'm really trying to get my wife, a job in DC. And so he said, one of the adjuncts at American was just put on the court of appeals. Hmm. And that was Judge Barbera. She had been on the court of special appeals before that, which is in Maryland, the court of appeals, like New York is the highest court mm-hmm. and the court of special appeals is intermediate court. He said, she's, she's looking for clerks. Hmm. Now, again luck that is never a court i would have applied to so jamie says i know her we've you know he was at the time he was not a congress person at the time he was still full-time in American, mm-hmm. but they had worked together for a number of years so he said you should look at this this student she'd be a good fit so i went in interviewed it was a friday before i had to give carlton fields my acceptance or rejection mm-hmm. offer on a monday and i remember my parents were looking at me like I had 10 heads that I was about to pass up this huge opportunity to be a first year associate in big law. Neither of my parents are lawyers. So they see the salary and they're like their eyes bug out. And I'm about to tell them, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to turn down this full-time position, even if I don't have a job. So this is before I got the job. So it was on a Friday. And so she calls me and Steve has this famous story that we're on the way up to the interview, so even though the Court of Appeals for Maryland is based in Annapolis, all the judges have chambers in their own district. And so she's the Montgomery County judge. So her chambers are in the Rockville Courthouse. And at the time, Steve was living in Chinatown. So we hopped on the parkway to get there, and we're doing practice questions. And he says to me, what's your favorite Supreme Court case? And I look at him and I say, there is zero chance she's going to ask that. <laughs> and he's like, just do it. At this point, I had already been in tons of interviews and no one had asked me that. Like it was, it seemed like right. such a ridiculous question, especially because Judge Barbera's history had been. She had been a lawyer in the the governor's office. So it wasn't like she had been a Supreme Court practitioner. Her husband, Gary Bear, who's also a judge had been a Supreme Mm -hmm. Court practitioner, but I was like, she's not gonna ask that. So then he's like, well, let's just practice. And that's one of those questions that like, when you get that cold, your initial reaction is like, I don't know, Roe? Like, not like thinking about it. Right. We had rehearsed this perfect answer about a case about how intermediate scrutiny came about wow just a super like academic
1: right. Session, right. right
0: and so we're in the interview and we're like going through the things and lo and behold she says so what's your favorite supreme court case and this is where the luck comes into it right so i'm like oh and i make it seem like i'm kind of thinking meanwhile i pull <laughs> out this like random con law case, right? I explained to her like why it's so important that we have intermediate scrutiny and why like it's the difference between strict scrutiny and rational basis. And sometimes we need that intermediate level and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And you can just see her like eyes light up with it. And she called me five hours later and offered me the clerkship. Wow. And so that, that's like one of those, there are so many things that had to go right Mm -hmm. for me to even be in that room. Right. And then to also like get this question that had it been cold, I would have probably frozen up and not given a very good answer, mm-hmm. but we had practiced it no fewer than you know 30 minutes prior, and right. so there I had that perfect answer, I got that clerkship, and then my career just started rolling from there and mm-hmm. everyone kind of has that like first thing that got your foot in the door, but then like when you clerk for the state Supreme Court, it open it opened up so many doors right after that
1: yeah. Um, I love so many things about that story. I just love the acceptance that there's a little bit of chance, but that you have to make your own luck. That there yeah. there's a quantity and a quality that kind of keep pushing back and forth. Right. That you have to take a lot of shots. Yes. So that you're in the right room and get the right question when you're in the right room.
0: Right. So like we could have elected to like I think getting the clerkship interview in the first instance is luck, but then like the idea that we're going to do practice questions on the way up—that's choice, right? Right. So like right. those are kind of the the two different things. Hmm. And so yeah, so I got that clerkship and then things started rolling from there in my career. Now, I think you this started with did you want to be an employment lawyer?
1: Yeah, I did, but that's okay. <laughs> I love the story. It was worth it. It was totally worth it.
0: So so I do a one-year clerkship. It's a great clerkship, but I realized like I have no interest in appellate. Like less than zero, right? Damn. I I'm an extrovert i like to talk to people i like to be on the phone and have 17 different hr people emailing me asking about different questions all day and that's what gets me excited sitting right. and like doing a brief and looking at the record is just not my personality type which is funny because i'm married to the total opposite type who if he had my <laughs> job he would just die like right, he right. sometimes over covid we were sitting in the same room and he would hear me on the phone like what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like my job is sometimes part lawyer, part therapist, right. Or, you know, everything because of the type of law that I do, you need, you know, people really need a lot of handholding sometimes. So I, I finished and I knew I didn't want to do a pellet, which is kind of tough because the, the areas that want to hire you when you're coming out of an appellate clerkship or for appellate jobs. But I finished in 2010 and I was just ready to kind of take whatever. Well, sure. so I worked for about two years at a firm in Bethesda called Offit Kerman that I, I really, really loved the people, but it just wasn't the type of work that I wanted to be doing. And again, luck, there was a job at Aaron Fox that was posted online. We had no connections. I didn't know anybody who worked there. After my first round interview, I realized that another woman who eventually became a very good friend of mine had also clerked for my judge. Hmm. And she was a senior associate who people loved. And the, the clerkship credibility went a long way. Right. And the first two years of my career after my clerkship, even though it wasn't the type of law I wanted to do, I was in court a lot. And so I got a lot of litigation under my belt. So when Mm -hmm. I went in, I was interviewing as a a third or fourth year associate. And I was like, yeah, I've taken depositions. Yeah, I've been to court, which was significantly more than any other fourth year sitting on that floor already. So again, one of those things about luck of like, had I just gone probably straight into Aaron Fox from the clerkship, I wouldn't have had those first couple of years of experience, which meant that when I started as a fourth year, I had a lot of respect already because mm-hmm. I had done all of these things that right. people hadn't, people in the same class as me hadn't yet done. So I was hired primarily as a commercial litigation associate, but then the people that I was really drawn to were the employment lawyers. There were these three men who had been there for a long time. They didn't have a dedicated associate. The original case that I was sort of hired to work on, which was an anti-kickback case, mm-hmm settled like the week before I started. Right. And so I got there and like the huge case that they had sort of brought me into work on had gone away. And yeah, there's always work in a big law. Sure, field. sure, sure. But I sort of had to make my path. And I saw mm-hmm. that, you know, these guys were really, really good people. And they didn't have a dedicated associate who was interested in employment law. They had had someone, th- you know, who had left. And so, Again, I just, just kind of started taking them out to lunch, saying, Hey, what's you know, what's your interest in employment law? How'd you guys get into this? And started getting more and more projects from them. And, you know, you hear the expression in law firms, like people vote with their feet, right? Mm-hmm. So I just kept getting more and more work from them. And then finally that was my dedicated practice area.
1: So you start with getting experience, experience anywhere, just practical experience that doesn't have to be in the same area, but shows that you have learned a little bit about what it means to be a lawyer in practice yes, and then putting yourself out there a little bit and saying, I know I was hired to do this, but I can add value to the law firm and add value to the law firm's partners doing that. And that's what I want to do. And it may not work, but it sounds like it, you took the shot and it's never going to work if you don't take the shot. Right. Yeah.
0: And actually when I was at Offit Kerman, like I had two federal trials in EDVA in two years, you know, I wasn't, the lead lawyer on the case. Right, but... but like the fact that our cases were going to trial and I was doing depositions, you know, as a second year associate, that's what kind of small and mid-sized firms allow you to do. You know, I think in law school, I've I've tweeted about this before, that like there is sort of this this disconnect between what so many lawyers past like your first couple of years of work are doing and what's sold in law schools. Hmm. And I think because the pressure to have your median income be X, right? And the big donors to the schools are big law firms. You, at least for me, you kind of get this impression in in law school that like the only jobs Mm -hmm. out there are in big law. Whereas when I look around at my classmates who are super successful, very few of them are left in Big Law. This is my 13th year of practice. I have lots of friends who are partners in Big Law. Mm -hmm. firms, But I think when you're in law school, you think that that's like kind of the only path. And I am so glad I spent that time there. Mm -hmm. But there certainly are lots and lots of things, just like most of your guests are not in Big Law. You know, they're doing something else, even if they did a stint there.
1: 100%.
0: It all worked out. And then... Then, you know, the bomb gets dropped, which is that we're going to move to Austin. Yeah. Um, So that
1: was going to be my next question is the the legal practice is notorious for being not geographically flexible. Once you take the bar and start practicing, your bio does not read like that. And so tell me about that and maybe some of the lessons you learned along the way.
0: Yes. Okay. So I took the Maryland bar when I graduated, I waved into DC. And then in my first year of practice after my clerkship, I sat for the Virginia bar. So I had these... So I had like the, the trifecta bar.
1: The DMV bar.
0: The DMV bar, right? Which I think was actually quite helpful in getting um, the job at Aaron Fox, having all three of those bars. Did I ever in one million years think that I would be carrying a gold sparkle, it truly is gold and sparkly, Texas bar card? <laughs> Less than, you know, eight years later? No, Jonah, I did not. <laughs> but But here I am. And... The thing is, is that I absolutely just love it here. So let me rewind and answer your question before I put the cart before the horse. So in my, I think I was a sixth year associate at Aaron Fox, sixth or seventh, and Steve gets this opportunity to to interview at UT, which is a really great school. We've been friends with Bobby Chesney, who's here at UT for a long time. He's always kind of wanted Steve to look at it we were thinking about having kids. I think you and I were in the same neighborhood in DC at the time, We were, were. you know, I think the first time we met was when we were both on parental leave at the La Colombe in Blagden Alley.
1: That's true, that's true, Um, good memory.
0: And so we were kind of thinking like, what's next? And so Steve comes down to Austin and he does the interview and he gets a job. And so we decide, okay, we're gonna move. And I think I, because when we've talked about the early years of my career, because those things all just sort of fortuitously fell into place, I kind of thought, well, sure, how hard could getting a job in Austin, Texas <laughs> be? It was tough. It was really, really hard. It was not like I had a whole bunch of people rolling out the red carpet for me here mm-hmm. in Austin. And, you know, Austin is a notoriously protective legal market. I think that it's such a great place to live and there are so many people from the coast that wanna come practice here. Mm -hmm. Certainly
1: more more now also.
0: Every day, more and more every day, right? We moved here five years ago and every day I get emails from folks that wanna move here. And so I got a job at a firm that ended up being, you know, it ended up being a good job and I got the job, but in the context of things that are lucky and unlucky, Within the first like six months that I started at this firm, the firm basically like self imploded. And a 70 year old firm in Austin went from, I think it was at the time, the oldest law firm in Austin was going through like a failed merger. Like there was just a lot of things that weren't going right at the time. And the employment lawyer that I was working for was going to leave to go to an employment law only boutique where there was like five lawyers and they only did employment law. And she said, you can come be my associate. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of, at that point because between Aaron Fox and all these other times, I was like already like an eighth or ninth year associate. Mm And so I was like, well, I don't really want to be an associate forever. Like at some point in time, I want to be a partner. And so I didn't, I felt like doing that was going to be kind of restarting the clock, right? I was going to be mm-hmm. at a new firm.
1: Sure, you have to prove all yourself things. all over again.
0: Exactly. And when I moved to Austin, I had been introduced to a woman. I didn't really know a whole lot of lawyers here. And she and I were out to lunch and we ran into two of her friends at, at lunch at the same restaurant and I had been in Austin for like, I don't know, six weeks. And so one of the women that she introduced me to, her name was Catherine, and Catherine and I then independently became friends. So again, in the context of, you need to like sort of sow all of those, you know, seeds, whatever the expression Mm -hmm. is. So I get introduced to this woman, Catherine. I go back to my regular job at my firm, but things aren't going great. And she, at the time, had just joined this new firm called Whitliff Cutter, that had at the time like four lawyers and she said you know we're really looking to expand and bring on an employment law partner would you be interested and so at that point in time i had the choice of going and being my partner's associate at this employment law firm or going and being a partner at kind of a startup like Mm -hmm. it was still scrappy we were you know just trying to figure it out And I said to Steve, I'm like, I think I I think I have to do this, right? I think I have to take the chance. There's and I had never not been a W-2 employee in my entire life, right? Like from when I was a lifeguard. I'm not I don't have like an entrepreneurial spirit. It was so scary to take that first initial idea of, oh my God, I'm not gonna have a paycheck. Mm -hmm. Plus at the time, I was pregnant with our second. Right. So there is of course no maternity, like there's not maternity leave when you're sort of in this startup-y context, you know, anytime I didn't work, it just meant I didn't make money. And so I did it. And now it's coming up on four years. And I can, without a doubt, say that it was the best decision of my entire career. All the other things we've talked about pale in comparison to doing this. In all my other jobs, I would constantly be, if someone like messaged me on LinkedIn, like, hey, are you interested? I'd be like, sure, I'll talk to you. I don't even like respond to those messages Mm. now because I'm so happy. It's the perfect job for me. And that was all about just taking such a leap of faith of not knowing what was going to come out on Mm -hmm. the other side. And it could have been a disaster, but I guess the luck, the luck kicked in again and it has been super, super awesome in every way.
1: So I guess that segues nicely to talk a little bit about your podcast. What made you decide to start in Loco parentis? and also, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I want one solid piece of advice for two lawyer parent families that you think you've figured out.
0: Okay. So what led to it? So you know I think especially during the Trump administration, Steve's you know profile on Twitter grew. and I- I was not really into Twitter. I had had an account, but it was sort of dormant. There is a mom lawyer group on Facebook that has now kind of disbanded. And and it's sort of like, you know, people joke, it's like the fight club of mom lawyer Facebook groups that you're not supposed to talk about it. But there was a thread in there with a lawyer who's on Twitter and she, it was right when the uh, Varsity Blues scandal, first Mm -hmm. broke. And I had just joined this group and someone posted to her tweets of it. And she is she is now a friend of mine, like a personal Mm -hmm. real life friend. But at the time she and she's known for like breaking down complaints and making them sort of digestible and very interesting. And she did that for the Varsity Blues complaint. And I'm like, who is this person? This is hilarious. Like, this is awesome. And I start looking at her, and I start looking at some of the people she's following, and I'm like, what is law Twitter? Like, I – and this wasn't really that long ago. Right.
1: It feels like forever, but
0: – It feels like a long time ago, but I guess that complaint probably broke, like, maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. First like – Sydney, my, my oldest one, I'm pretty sure was born.
1: Yeah. It couldn't have been that long ago because I just, I, I, just cool. did a, I just did a hypo in my class the last two years based yeah. on it. So it's pretty recent.
0: It's pretty recent, right? And so I start kind of like clicking around Twitter and I really, I, I like tweeted really peripherally. And then I'm like, huh, there's this like a whole law Twitter world out there. And like a lot of them are moms and a lot of them are like pretty cool. So I start tweeting. I can't remember like when I started to like awkwardly slide into people's DMs and be like, hey, want to be friends. But that's, you know, that happened shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of noticed that like people thought it was very funny when I would drag Steve on Twitter.
1: Yes, (laughs) it is hilarious.
0: You know, he is a very serious academic and I'm obviously not an academic. And so, and a lot of people on Twitter are like, very obsequious and, you know, it's kind of like that mob boss in the car when he's a law professor, like everybody has to laugh because he's the boss. And so I have to be like, you're not, that's not funny. Like what you just said is not funny. I need to like bring him back down to reality a little bit. And so that was like getting a lot of attention. And so then our friend, Lisa Rubin, who is, who has been on our podcast mm-hmm. and who is the legal producer for the Rachel Maddow show, and also a friend of Steve's from law school said, you guys should do a podcast. And we're like, what would we talk about? And she's like, you could just talk about like your lives, talk about being parents, talk about being lawyers and parents. So we're like, okay. And we just sort of thought about it. Steve had already done a podcast, National Security Law Podcast. And so we we recorded a like mock episode. First, we kind of wanted to see like, would we have a natural cadence and a natural Mm -hmm. rhythm? Because obviously we've been married for almost 10 years. We've been together for almost 14 years. So all those things, we obviously know how to interact with each other, but how is that going to translate? And like, are we going to feel awkward? Those types of things. So we we recorded a mock episode and we sent it to Lisa for thoughts. And she's like, I love it. You have to do it. So then we started lining up guests. We knew we wanted to do a guest podcast. So Mm -hmm. it'd be like, A little bit about us talking about our lives and a little bit of guests. And all the guests have been awesome. We're only this will be our twenty first episode coming up. So I think our podcast launched right around the same time.
1: Yeah, exactly. They're
0: both pretty pretty junior in their you know, their lives. But it's been fun. I think it's you know, will we do it forever? I don't know. But I really have enjoyed the people that we've gotten to talk to. And, you know, I'm just a employment lawyer at a firm in Austin and I'm like on Zooms with very sort of quote important people and it's fun Mm -hmm. and and like I've had friends on and you know people that I've never met on people whose careers I would never interact with Mm -hmm. you know law students people who just there's so many lawyers out there as this podcast is based on the idea of there's so many different kinds of ways to be a lawyer and what's fun is that you have the added benefit of all these people are parents Mm -hmm. right and so I think that the legal profession does a really, really terrible job of allowing us to be the people that we are outside of law. I think it was expected for a very, very long time that you could have a life outside of your firm or outside of wherever you practiced, but you had to leave that life at the door. And I kind of just... Blatantly reject that notion. I am very, very open with my clients. I don't have an anonymous Twitter. I try to, you know, keep things. Obviously, I don't tweet about anything related to cases on Twitter. But yeah, I try to be as much of myself in my client interaction as I am on Twitter, as I am on our podcast, because I don't really want to hide who I am when I'm doing when I'm doing anything. Let alone mm-hmm. the thing that I do the most, which is other than parenting, which is be a lawyer. And so. And there are some people who do not take that approach. I think that the guests that are fancy Supreme Court litigators, you know, they are not out there tweeting out their every thought or making jokes or whatever, because mm-hmm. that's their persona. And, you know, they don't. And, that, and that's cool. Like, that's what they want to do. But for us, I was like, well, we already I already talk about so much stuff related to parenting on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So does Steve. I think it's important for people to see what our real lives are like. hmm. And like, we're pretty honest on the podcast for people who have listened. I mean, what you hear is like kind of what it really is like for us, which is kind of just barely hanging on at any moment in time, but it all just sort of works.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, as somebody who listens and who is in a two working parent family, I mean, we both have two daughters. Our daughters are roughly the same age. It is so great to hear other people And this is what I love about the internet and podcasting. I mean, there's horrible things about Twitter. There's horrible things about the internet. Yes. But what I love about it is somebody who otherwise I would never get to interact with, but actually has a lot more in common with me than even my own friends who live down the street. And that's you and Steve, that I get a window into what you're thinking. And it helps because I'm thinking some of the same things. Sometimes I just need to hear someone else say it and and that helps. And so I personally am grateful that you guys are so open about it because it's fun. And, and I've tried to, personally, I've tried to be, like you said, my whole self on the internet and a professional at the same time. And I totally agree. I think you can do that. doesn't mean you have to say everything in your brain online.
0: Yes. I have made an affirmative effort now to stop swearing quite as much on my Twitter. Like mm-hmm. i because I'm just like, okay, well, if someone, you know, stumbles upon my Twitter and is looking at tweets from like six months ago and is seeing in that moment in time, I was like so mad about something that XYZ politician did. Like how can I frame that in a way that both, you know, gets my anger out about it mm-hmm. and can open a dialogue about that issue, but also make it seem like someone who, yeah, they wanna hire that person too, right? Right. Because that's something that I have to think about. And so one of the things I've like, tried to stop swearing as much. I've tried to like, not get into, I kind of just will shut down if there's like some sort of argument going on. I've had to shut my Twitter down outright because I've had gotten trolled on some issues so significantly. We've gotten threats to our personal cell phones. Like we, there have been scary things that have come up. Oh. And those things do sometimes push me to the, oh my God, should we just like shut this all down and go underground and never tweet about our kids and all those things. And then part of me is like, no, because I really do get a lot of joy and benefit from it and i have met so many awesome people mm-hmm. made really legitimate friends from this enterprise not just the podcast but from twitter in general that i would have never had without that and so you take the good with the bad with it and i think for right now there's there's still a lot of good and it's it's i get a lot of like i'm sure you do as well just a lot of dms from people saying like oh this was so interesting or i really learned about this i listened to your podcast mm-hmm. you know for us because it's about parenting people are like oh i listened to three o'clock in the morning while i was feeding my right. kid and i had the same thing that you guys went through and there are so many things about parenting that we all are sharing that we're just so tired to discuss that it's mm-hmm. like you know i'm not gonna like dm you and be like hey my kid did xyz did <laughs> But if you hear it on the podcast, you're like, my kid did that too, you know? And so it's just a way to sort of share it with more people than you are able to over text or email or phone calls.
1: Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I appreciate so much is that you and Steve really are equal parents. That doesn't mean you're equal parents at every moment. And that's what I've learned from my own relationship is that just like being a lawyer often meant leave your personal life at the door being a dad meant you couldn't do things. And I think we need to talk about doing all the things and the things that we're still not doing. I think that's really important. And and you guys do an incredible job of
0: that. Well, thank you. Yeah, we try. You know, I think you asked what was one piece of advice to give a two-lawyer household. I would say, and this is just what has worked for us, is that there are moments in time where someone's career has to be put above somebody else's career. And that doesn't mean that... That is forever going to be that person, the person who's important. You know, I'm doing air mm-hmm. quotes. No one can see me right now. Right. We're on <laughs> um, That doesn't make that person's career more important or less important. And I think that y- you have to be able to sort of say there are things that might be good for my career that are not going to be good for my family, and it's okay if I leave those things on the table because you will drive yourself mad in this profession if you are constantly trying to strive for the best possible job that you can get without looking at how that's going to affect your entire life. And Steve and I have both said repeatedly that there are other opportunities out there for, you know, both of us at this point in our career, we're senior enough, but that this right now are the opportunities that we have in Austin and with our family is the absolute best for the holistic family unit of the Vladik mm-hmm. family, right? And so, you know, someone DM'd me the other day and said like, it would be really interesting for you to have two big law partners who are married to each other on the podcast. And I said to Steve, I said, do we know two big law partners who are married to each other? And of the like, literally hundreds, Mm -hmm. hundreds of lawyers that Steve and I personally know, we couldn't think of one. Wow. And there's a reason for that, right? Mm -hmm. Like there has to be a give and take in a family unit. And that give and take is, is sometimes has to be career, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I am at a firm where I, my goal is to bill somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 hours a year, right? And that works perfectly with my husband's job who has a crazy demanding job. I think academics get a bum rap of they don't work that hard, but <laughs> his work's just, I mean, around the clock. Mm-hmm. And our lives would not function if I was at a 2,000-hour-plus-a-year job.
1: Mm-hmm. There's only so many hours in the day.
0: Only so many hours in the day.
1: Zero-sum game.
0: And honestly, I wouldn't be any happier than I am now. So it's like, I think that there comes a time for two lawyers where you have to look at your family and your career in a a pie chart and figuring out how you shrink and expand those pieces of the pie chart to make it as whole as possible. Because if you are saying, I wanna have the best possible job I can, you have to realize that that's also, that may affect your family life and that Mm -hmm. might be okay. You just have to go into it with eyes wide open and so we are fortunate that we're in a place where those things are currently at the moment in a harmonious balance right it can always be offset at any moment in time but yeah that would be i guess that's my sort of long-winded way of saying like it's okay to have a career that's not textbook exactly what you thought it was going to be because you're realizing that all the pieces have to fit together
1: Mm-hmm. No, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, the, my favorite example of this, and I only bring it up because I'm lucky enough to have his office at Georgetown Law. Marty Ginsburg used to say, or Marty and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg yeah. used to say that you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time.
0: Exactly. Which to me is
1: like exactly the exactly. concept of the pie chart you're talking about.
0: Exactly. And
1: he talks about coming to Georgetown, and in part because his wife got a better job in DC and right. to go on the DC circuit. And that's what they did for their family, and they made it work. But You know, one of the things that you're not saying, and I love that you're not saying it, if I can point it out, is that it shouldn't be assumed whose job is going to take precedence at any given moment. Right. Right. And that I do think is different than in a generation or two gen certainly two generations.
0: Absolutely. And frankly, most of the big law partners that are women that I know have stay-at-home spouses now. And that or not, or maybe not stay at home, but something where they don't have... There's a reason that there's not two big law partners. And actually, most of the people that I interact with personally, the it's the female, if it's in a hetero relationship, mm-hmm. right? That is in big law, just because that's my orbit. But yeah, exactly. I'm not saying it's one parent or the other. Mm-hmm. I think for both of us, what we've done is we've both dialed it back, like probably about the same, mm-hmm. right? And so you could either do one person goes full throttle and the other person way dials back you could both do it a little you could do 75 25 but i think that you know our notions about what careers are going to look like are are very heavily influenced once we have kids Mm -hmm. And Steve and i kind of both want to be there as much as possible while also still maintaining our careers and so we've been able to kind of meet halfway
1: hundred percent. hundred percent. Obviously it sounds nice. It's a lot harder to do as your podcast is a testament yeah. to. But, it's a lot harder to do. It's but,
0: hard to do. Yeah. But
1: it's good to have an aspiration. And if you work towards it, if you set the bar low enough, anybody can jump over it, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> All right. Look, I always like to end and you already gave a piece of parenting advice, but I do like to end by asking for a piece of lawyering advice, something okay. you've learned, a lot, learned along the way. Is there something you wish that you either someone told you when you were a young lawyer or that you would tell young lawyers that you're interacting with?
0: Oh my gosh. I have so many. As I like to tweet, I always tweet out advice to younger lawyers. But so in law school, I always give the same advice, which was cast your net as wide as you can and see what comes back to you. I think it's very, very difficult to know what kind of lawyer you want to be in law school. I think if your podcast has shown anything, it's that most people graduate law school and are not really 100 percent sure what kind of law they want to practice and just sort of like fall into to it and then navigate within that mm-hmm. practice right so cast your net which is always true find a networking style that appeals to your personality type because that's so important and you know to view networking as not just going to cocktail parties and conferences and that kind of thing that networking is real estate lawyer that I play tennis with this morning, because we're also friends. That's mm-hmm. something that I like to do, which is play tennis. And I'm doing it with another member of the bar who's not at my firm, which is just an added benefit, right? Mm-hmm. And so those are the types of things that I think you really need to figure out how to make work in your life, especially once you have kids and those sort of extra networking hours become very sparse, right? right. And then the last one is this, being a lawyer is a hard enough job without having any sort of internal strife at your own firm. It always breaks my heart to hear from people who say like, I love litigation, but my boss does X, Y, Z, right? And no one ever, ever regretted leaving a toxic work environment. If anything, they turn around and say, gosh, I should have left sooner. Now, I clearly know that being able to leave a job without having a job or with, you know, taking to a job that's lower pay is a privilege that not everybody has. And I, I fully recognize that. But if you wait until you're so miserable that you're, you know, on the verge of a nervous breakdown or you're just, you can't get out of bed or you sit in the parking lot and cry, if you wait till that, you're not going to have as much flexibility in your next job because you're just going to take the first thing that comes along, right? Mm-hmm. If you are in a meeting and you're looking around and, you, and you're and you a second or third-year associate and you cannot see yourself there, not next year, but in three years down the line, you need to be thinking about what your exit strategy is when you're not crying in the parking lot,
1: mm-hmm. right? And your exit strategy <laughs> doesn't have to necessarily be quit the law and go write the next great American novel Holy. on Walden Pond.
0: Yes. Like, think about when you just can't picture yourself somewhere, where are you picturing yourself and what are you doing to get there before you have to leave? Because I think what happens in the law a lot and people who I've seen leave the law, they've gotten to the point in their career where they are so incredibly miserable that they'll just leave because it's so the alternative is so much worse. And I think that if you can sort of not wait until you get to that Mm -hmm. point, you're doing yourself a huge service. And so if you're still listening and you go to work tomorrow and you're looking around and you don't see yourself there in three years or four years, take 30 minutes today and check in with yourself about where do I see myself? If I don't know where I see myself, who am I going to ask about how to figure that out? And then what steps am I going to take to get myself to that place?
1: Again, that was Karen Vladek, an employment lawyer in Austin, Texas. I want to thank Karen for sharing not only about her career and her career path, but also some really important advice about balancing your career with your personal life. You can learn more from Karen on Twitter at KSVESQ, and you can listen to our podcast called In Loco Parentis. As always, I can be reached at howilawyer at gmail.com or on Twitter at Jonah Perlin. Thanks again to Karen, thanks for listening, and have a great week.